0: Hello and welcome to Project ECHO, West Vic PHN, COVID-19, ECHO Network. This is Series 2, Session 2, recorded on Thursday the 23rd of July at 7.30 in the morning. Here's the panel didactic from this morning's session. Come along next week to join the conversation and the 30-minute Q&A. We're going to be talking about aged care, so if you'd like to register for sessions, if you haven't already registered, just uh, Google COVID-19, Project ECHO, West Vic PHN, and uh, come join the conversation. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Um, We are kind of continuing up our conversation about stepping up uh, testing and tracing in regional Victoria and raising priority issues here this morning. Um, in our last session, we began by asking our trusted contributors, infectious disease physician, um, Associate Professor Deb Freeman, the question of where are we in regional Victoria and, uh, and Rachel Cowan in our local regions. Oh, well, we learned about Bowen Health's new role, and Deb will tell us about that a bit more later, around contact tracing locally. Um, We discussed the early steps towards the decentralised contact tracing in Ballarat and the Goldfields, Wimmera and Grandpara regions. And this morning we'll continue this conversation as we work to further embed revised guidelines and processes into practice as cases rise in each of our communities. All right. So for the purpose of this audio file, I've cut out the formal proceedings, acknowledgement to country, etiquette and uh, learning agenda. And I'm going to move straight on to now to Associate Professor Deborah Friedman, followed by Rachel Cowan. I'll cut out the chat. Come and join the conversation next week, if you like. Um, But we had a respiratory update from the respiratory clinics, but I'm going to bring back uh, the PHN update and health pathways at the end.
1: Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Bianca. Um, So I guess, where are we now? So it's five weeks since numbers started increasing in Victoria. It's two weeks since the stage three lockdown of Melbourne and Mitchell Shire. Um, There's now nearly 7,000 cases in Victoria. And before this escalation, there was actually only about 7,000 cases in the whole country. Um, Right now, 16.5% of cases in Victoria are unlinked to other people. And while there might be further investigation that later links them to other existing outbreaks, there's an increasing proportion that are unlinked. There's more than 200 people in hospital and 40 people in ICU, which is an increase. Every week we're seeing an increase in those numbers. Um, we've got more deaths, rapid spread into aged care. Um, currently, as of last night, there are 197 active cases in aged care in Victoria, which is which is a huge number considering that we had none about four weeks ago. Um, Overall, of all of the cases in Victoria, we've got 384 cases in total that have been from regional Victoria. Of all of those, we've currently got 72 active cases in the Barwon South Southwest region. Um, I'll allow Rachel to talk more about the Ballarat region, but overall we're seeing an increased number of cases in Colac, in Portland, Um, We've got some cases in Golden Plains and I note cases, some new cases in Horsham. Um, Overall, there is still, I guess, I wanna put some good news. Um, Only 0.5% of the tests that are done in Victoria are actually positive, which still indicates a very large amount of testing and that we're certainly doing enough testing But overall, the situation is very serious. Healthcare worker cases are increasing. You've probably heard the large numbers of over 50 people from some of the Melbourne hospitals that are furloughed. Um, Increasingly, we're seeing, (coughs) excuse me, some schools being closed because of clusters within schools. Um, Our contact tracing team that we alluded to last week became official (coughs) last week with an announcement from the health minister. And this coincided almost to the day with the start of an outbreak in Australian lamb in Colac. So it's been a baptism by fire for our team with a large number of cases um, associated with that facility. We really greatly appreciate the role of any of you in in assisting us. Our team works 8 a.m. till 8 p.m. seven days a week. It's actually um, pretty grueling um, and completely consuming work. Um, so please forgive us if there are things that we do miss. We know where the cases are in the region and very occasionally our we what we're learning is that our capacity to trace cases really well is completely proportional to what we're told by the cases. And as you probably know, when you've interviewed patients before, they can tell one person one thing and another person another thing. So occasionally they will neglect to say that they had breakfast with Bianca or Rachel a day before they got symptoms. And that sort of thing does happen. So we really appreciate if you have patients coming to you and that this is happening, saying, oh, I heard this person was positive, but I'm not sure if I'm at risk, please do let us know um, because we're understanding that there is a variability in what we do get told by people that we interview. Um, you may get questions about somebody who's had Um, a contact and they were unclear if it was significant. Once again, please do let us know the case. We know the cases and the dates of onset of their illness and we can then advise the person. Um, You might also find a contact that had been entirely missed and we really appreciate it if you do let us know any of those things. You probably will get queries about isolation. I think you all know this, but just to reiterate, everybody has to isolate as soon as they develop a symptom, even before they get tested. And everybody has to isolate after they've been tested before they get results. And everybody has to isolate if they're a confirmed contact or a confirmed close contact or a confirmed case. So there's a little bit of a lack of understanding about... People who are deemed a close contact, we tell them at interview that they are in isolation for two weeks, regardless of whether they have a test on day one that comes up as negative. They are in isolation for two weeks and we've seen people doing the wrong thing. Many of you might have heard in the briefing yesterday from Daniel Andrews, now that this has been analyzed at a state level, they know that 90% of people are not isolating after the onset of symptoms and before going to get tested. And half of people after they, um, after their swab is done and before the results come out, they're not isolating either. This completely gels with what we're hearing when we interview people, that people are stopping somewhere to go shopping on the way home from getting a test, or they're still picking their kids up from school. They're still going into daycare to pick up their children, even when they're waiting for a swab result or when they know that they've got early symptoms. Um, So this is what we're up against. Um, And so please spread the word to your team and your patients. Um, Deb, I'm just going to pause for a sec. Let's throw up that phone
0: number. And I'm just thinking um, what's the best way, you know, I'm just thinking maybe even... You know, if we've got additional information, is it worth just emailing those patient details through? And you'll give them a call. How's that phone line running? Um, You know, what should we, what
1: should we do? So the um, email is an effective way of contacting us. We've usually got one member of the team who's watching the email all the time. I don't mind people calling me personally on my mobile. So if you're not getting any joy from the phone number that's up on the screen now. You can call myself, you can call Daniel O'Brien. We're kind of around most days um, and we're always happy to chase it up. So please try that number. But if you don't get any joy, just call us personally. How Um, do you want
0: us to share your phone number,
1: Deb? Are you sure? Oh, no, they can do it through the switchboard. But I found right. that most people through the Barwon Southwest region already know my mobile number as I get calls at all times of day and night now. So, yeah, that's, that's just a okay, bye-bye. Thanks. Great. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. Um, Bianca, did you want me to talk more about um, droplet versus airborne transmission now, or did you want yeah. to do a little bit more updates from other people in the region? Uh, well,
0: look... Why don't you why don't we throw to Rachel to give a Ballarat update and then we'll come back to that piece? Good. Um, thanks,
2: Deb. Hi. Thanks, Deb. That was great. Um completely reiterating everything that Debs saying that we're actually finding exactly the same thing with the cases in Ballarat, and the contact tracing in Ballarat, that there's been a lack of isolation or quarantining of people after they've get te- got tested or before they've got tested, they'll go and have lunch with three people and then they'll go get tested, or they'll go to the Bottle O to get alcohol before they get tested because they know they're gonna be positive, that kind of stuff. So um, we've been finding exactly the same thing. Um, at the moment, we've got 14 patients. Uh, at with uh, 10 of them being monitored through the hospital in the home team. We actually have two in ICU at the moment. Uh, One of them is intubated, who was someone that was uh, being monitored on the hospital in the home program and deteriorated a couple of days ago and unfortunately has ended up there. Um, From the aged care um, uh, outbreak that we've had, we've got um, one aged care facility predominantly involved with a contact in a second aged care and from that we've got two residents who are both being monitored in hospital and three staff members as well um, and from that we've also found that two NDIS workers that had been um, coming up to those that aged care facility are actually positive as well so I suspect a likely source potentially um, just from the, the timing of that. Um, uh, yeah, so they're sort of our cases at the moment. Um, as far as testing is concerned, UFS continues to do a sensational job and has increased their hours. And Ballarat Community Health has started their testing as of last Saturday um, in a very rushed fashion to get it up and running um, as at the request of the DHHS. Uh, and they're... Uh, contact tracing an awful lot of people Um, and then um, from a contact sorry testing a lot of people and from a contact tracing perspective we've actually have an ad hoc uh, contact tracing we were also going to be one of the hubs that the DHHS uh, requested but um, I think they might be a little bit distracted in terms of catching up with contact tracing of their own and so we've with permission, been setting up our own contact tracing as well uh, in the region. And so, um, and just from that aged care facility as well, just in terms of overall um, impact, we actually had to furlough, for those two aged care residents and three staff, we've furloughed well over 50 to 60 nursing staff, which has been um, quite devastating from a provision of care perspective. Uh, and has been incredibly stressful. So that's the update from Ballarat. Thanks, Rachel. I'll um, hand back over to Deb.
0: And um, and there's a couple of questions already popping up in the chat. We'll kind of perhaps go to them uh, once we finish through our cases. Thanks, Deb.
1: Yeah, and look, um, Rachel's just reminded me to say uh, we've got one person intubated in ICU right now in Geelong. That's the first one we've had in the entire this entire year. And I think Rachel's two now are the first ones that they've had intubated in ICU there. So so this is certainly serious. And also um, very interesting that how predictable um, some of these deteriorations are in terms of the timeframe of the illness. So about day seven or day eight of illness, once the sort of acute viremia has resolved is when the sort of increasing respiratory difficulty can come on That can come on very, very quickly. Um, And that's certainly the case um, with the patient that we've got in intensive care. Um, I just wanted to, there was a couple of things in the chat saying people wanted to go back to work when they had one negative test, but still had some symptoms. So the way that I would approach that would be to determine if there were any plausible close contacts with infection. Um, The reason I say that is that overall, while we are seeing escalating cases, Overall, the most common cause of their respiratory tract symptoms are going to be are not going to be coronavirus. So I think it's important to determine if there's any close contacts and if there's any contacts at all that could be plausible close contacts. Then I would want to retest somebody. Um, so that would be my approach to that. Um, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about transmission. So you will hear things from time to time and sometimes it will come up in the media about droplet spread versus airborne spread. And just to remind everybody, droplet spread is what is the mode of transmission for the majority of respiratory viruses and they're large respiratory droplets where if you're within the traditional teaching was a metre or three feet, you might be at risk of acquisition. And that's true typically for influenza and the common cold. Um, airborne spread means that these are smaller particles they will be in the environment so if you're anywhere even within a large room or potentially even you know in a larger area you'd be at risk and typically the difference between the two is that the basic reproductive number is significantly higher for airborne infections than it is for droplet spread infections so I guess the best example is something like measles which has a basic reproductive number of anything up to about 16, so 14 to 16. So for any one person that's infected, you might get 14 to 16 secondary cases. And thus the reasoning that you'll hear you know, on the news that if anybody was at Chatston Shopping Centre or Tullamarine Airport on this date, you, there was somebody there with measles. The only reason that you would say something in such a large area like Tullamarine Airport is that it can spread in such a way because of the basic reproductive number. However, that is a bit different with coronavirus. We do know that the basic reproductive number is somewhere around the two to three mark, and uh, excuse me while there's some noise in the background, sorry. They're ...at the hospital today. Sorry about that, sorry <laughs> about that. Um, so, so that is a little bit different than what we see with COVID-19. There has been experimental data, and the experimental data supported the fact that there could be airborne spread. They looked at some of the droplets that were in the air after speaking and after coughing, and they came up with the fact that they could spread 27 feet um, and that they may remain suspended in the air for hours. That was experimental data. Um, shouldn't be ignored, and it is is important, but we have to try and reconcile this with what we see clinically. Um, the data on infections and transmission that we're seeing doesn't reconcile with this. Um, about We know that about 5% of contacts overall become infected. So that's kind of across the board, about 5% of people who are in contact do become infected, but the risk is highest for household contacts. And I think anyone who's sort of spoken to people or done any um, contact tracing would, Um, agree that household contacts are the highest rate of infection where it can be up to 40% and sometimes more, especially if there's young children involved. So where there's teenagers that effectively go to their bedroom and don't hang out with anyone else, you can really reduce infection. I know my kids don't want to be anywhere but their bedroom. If you've got young children, it's the exact opposite where the infection rate is really, really high. Um, If you were, if you're looking at the infection rate, for somebody who just happened to go shopping at a place where somebody happened to be there with coronavirus, the risk is incredibly small. It's about a half of 1%. So, and that would be a really random event that you happen to get infected because you were shopping in an area where somebody else was. There's been four different studies that have been done comparing the surgical mask, to an N95 mask, so what they're saying, a P1 mask versus a P2 mask. And they've found no difference in terms of the risk of healthcare worker acquisition of infection. This gels in with previous studies of the original SARS coronavirus, where even though there was evidence of airborne spread, a medical surgical mask was still effective at reducing transmission. But either way, there is no perfect data. And one of the things to say is that we're going to be learning more over time so it would be improper for me to declare that we know everything about this virus and I think we all have to acknowledge that we're going to learn more about things over time but there is no reason to believe that a surgical mask would not be adequate for your day-to-day interactions with people that you do not know to be infected. So I think that's the first thing. And even in the setting of somebody being in a household with somebody who's a close contact, if they are able to effectively isolate and if they happen to, you know, walk past somebody in a room, the risk is very low wearing a surgical mask. So I hope that kind of that maybe covers some of those things. Oh, thanks,
0: Deb. Can I just ask a couple of clarifying questions? So the young children with the infection rate being high, is that parent to child
1: rather than child to parent or? The belief overall is that children are probably less likely to transmit overall. That doesn't mean it's impossible that they transmit. And I think it's going to be based on their respiratory secretions largely and how how much of a cough they have. I think the other thing that we're seeing is that some people tend to transmit more than others, and that might be a function of their viral load or perhaps the strength of their cough. Um, Predominantly, and certainly the cases that we're looking at, we think that it's probably parent to child and then possibly child to, to other children in some situations. And we're certainly seeing that now with some cases um, in school. And we're also seeing it in daycare, where the only link that we've seen in one of our daycare facilities must be some transmission between the children to then infect their respective parents because there weren't any contact between the parents. So we believe that there has to be some transmission from child to child, but we think the majority of the transmission starts with adult to one child. seems to be a widespread
0: expectation that everyone at the school will need testing. My expectation would be that they should isolate as advised by the school and be tested if advised or they become symptomatic. Can this be clarified please?
1: Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. The Department of Health likes to start off by sort of getting people to isolate, and that's exactly um, the right thing to do. What's very difficult in a school is to ascertain the close contacts um, in, in the school environment, but certainly... But that those things may change when they identify if they identify more than one case within a particular year level. So if there were two cases in a year level, then you would probably test everybody in that year level because that would be the most you know the easiest way to approach it in terms of doing concentric circles around an infected person. But the most important thing is isolation and not going back to that school environment. And if anyone develops symptoms to be tested, what we're finding is, and I think Bianchi, we alluded before we sort of started the session today, that we know that sometimes it's harder for people to to, um, get testing on the day that they want to get it, um, in some settings. And I think some testing sites are doing better than others, but the demand is massive. And that's because when parents at a school hear about one case, they um, they want they want to all run out and get their kids tested, even when they're asymptomatic. It's pretty unhelpful, and remembering that asymptomatic testing is um, is not something that we want to do in a widespread manner. It can be important in some circumstances, and we're certainly seeing some of these circumstances now. But I wouldn't want to do that for sort of mass testing of a school. I think what it does is tie up resources, increases turnaround time of testing for those who would be higher priority. And in terms of
0: advising patients, like is there a sweet spot at which you get the most sensitive specific test with COVID? I mean, you know, I know we're talking about, well, best to wait till you've got symptoms, but again, is there a way of telling people a concrete thing like best to wait till day three, best to wait till day
1: 5 Thank you for mentioning that. That's an important point. So what we're learning is although the incubation period is said to be perhaps anything up to two weeks, that really is an outer limit, which we're not seeing very often. I think Rachel's nodding. So the, the, the majority of the time what we're seeing is that transmission can occur anywhere and that would be symptomatic. So people could be symptomatic within 48 hours, somewhere between the two to five day mark is by far and away the most common. So what I say to someone, if they have just found out that they were a close contact and it was yesterday, getting tested today is absolutely, absolutely um, useless. So my <clears throat> if people um, were in their isolation and they were asymptomatic, it still would be pretty unlikely um, and if, but if I've got a very high-risk close contact and we've found out about it at about the four or five-day mark, um, sometimes I'm testing them then, especially if they're young, the reason being that young people can have such minimal symptoms that it can be hard to tell, but that doesn't change the requirement for two weeks of isolation. And I think that's a really important message. But certainly what we're finding is people are hearing that somebody just tested positive yesterday and they're rushing to get tested today. Um, I think it's, you know, in most of those cases, it's way too soon. Thanks.
0: Um, and ask specifically about healthcare workers, should they get a test? Uh, when would you like them to test? Because I guess there's that broader implication of um, containing a potential outbreak in the healthcare worker setting.
1: Yeah, so there are obviously important implications in healthcare workers. Once again, if the exposure was very recent, rushing to get a test is probably unwise. We had a situation this week where we were able to find out that the, um, that the contact had occurred seven days prior with these healthcare workers. We did ask them at that, because we only found out on day seven, We did ask them to have a test immediately on their way home. And then we're obviously gonna do it again at about day 11, (coughs) excuse me, day 11 or 12 of the 14 days. But we thought we'd get one immediately. The reason being that they have treated many other patients since that, over those seven days. So we thought it would have very important implications for the other patients at the institution.
0: So Matt, I'd like to welcome Matt back on uh, to give you a brief um, PHN update. Thanks, Matt Dixon.
3: Uh, thanks very much, Bianca. So I just popped in the chat that, um, just to let people know we're getting uh, sort of massively increased requests for masks at the moment. So we're sort of uh, staffing up in order to get those uh, requests filled. So i um, sorry if they're taking a little bit long. We're sort of getting over 100 a day and that's just in the last few days. So we're addressing that. Uh, doing plenty of advocacy at state and federal levels around, um, making sure, particularly at state, that uh, people going in for surgery know what, what they need to do if they need a pre-procedure um, test and they're not sort of left scrambling trying to find that. Uh, also around telehealth access, uh, we're working with DHHS to identify some testing options for the more remote areas of the region in the far west. Uh, and we're sending an e- email out today to GPs and practices, just putting together all of the support that we can give and some signposting here and there. Um, our CEO is meeting with DHHS today to, uh, again, advocate for some better engagement uh, by DHHS with GPs, so we, we continue to try to uh, make things uh, better in that space. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Matt. And Kate, PHN update with, um, we've got a mini Kate as well. Hello. Yeah, this
1: is Lewis. Um, (laughs) It's a surprise appearance. Um, Just as a health pathways um, update, uh, we've got probably the most important pathways to remind people about at the moment um, would be the initial assessment and the ongoing assessment, um, just because they'll provide you with the best um, sort of options in terms of managing and responding to cases and close contacts. The other one that's really important is the management in aged care. Um, We should have the palliative care one live, but hopefully that won't be one that we need to use very frequently. So I'll leave that there for today and we'll catch you again next week. Thanks, Kate. And thanks, everyone. Bye.
0: See you, Lewis. Um. Thanks, everyone. Um. Sounds like people are keen to just keep it at um 60 minutes. Um. So we'll just run a 60-minute aged care session next week, and of course bring in all your COVID questions as well. We'll try and get that rapid uh, Q and A happening at the end too. So thanks for um joining us, and we'll see you next week.